Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. And welcome to another edition of the Breakfast Show here on the Voice of Islam Radio. Today is Wednesday, the 5th of July, 2023, with myself, Sharjeet Ahmed, and uh, Abdullah Halim as well. Assalamu alaikum. How are you doing this, uh, this morning? Assalamu I'm very well. How are you? It's been a quite a chilly morning. If yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Say, yeah, if yeah. I must say, if I'm being honest, yeah. it, it was a little bit, it was a little bit chilly, yeah. isn't it? I was, I was kind of happy when I got inside the building for the first time after a long time. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's true. I mean, yeah. we have, we, we, in terms of the weather, we have had some good, yeah. um, some good sunny spells as well yeah. in the past uh, few weeks. But um, this week, it, it, it is a bit raining as well. Yeah, um, especially yesterday, it rained quite a lot after a long time. Quite a lot. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And uh, the weather forecast for the, you know, in the next couple of days, you know, some days will be sunny, some days will be raining. So obviously, you can ne- you can never predict which day is going to be rainy, which day is going to be sunny. But it is predicting um, both weathers as well. Um, and early on to next week is also saying, or the we- the weather forecast is saying that it's going to uh, most likely rain mm. uh, as well. So let's see. Well, I was also reading that there's a heat wave coming as well. I heard that. I heard about that as well. Around forty degrees. That's what I heard as well, yeah. but uh, you know. We'll but you know, but the thing is, like last year, I remember it was. Mm. It did get up to that. It did get up yeah. to that. Yeah, there, there was one day, one yeah. or two days. It was a record high, isn't it? The record yeah. high. Yeah, I mean, every single <laughs> year there's a record break. Yeah. Uh, being broken. It, I think it just shows the world is getting hotter and hotter. Yeah. And uh, I think we will discuss as well. One of the topics is global warming, climate change. Yeah, we're gonna be yeah. we're gonna be talking about we're gonna be talking about uh, that as well. So on today's show, we're going to be talking about there's some sort of dust which uh, scientists believe that basalt going through the process of enhanced rock weathering um, could help remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And uh, this is something that we're going to be this is something that we're going to be talking about. So is it the key, or is it sort of the thing to or the way to fight climate change? Because it is. Um, it is very, very important as well. <coughs> now, to to avoid the worst, uh, you know, impacts of climate change, scientists tell us that we need to reduce carbon emissions by as much as forty percent by twenty thirty. And you know, this is why, you know, we see that the government is also trying to get rid of um, diesel cars, even yeah. even petrol cars. Yeah. Uh, in 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 the in the future, in the near future, I should say, maybe in a decade or. In a decade or or, or I, two, I believe it's around yeah. twenty thirty. They've they've mentioned twenty thirty. Yeah. That's what that's what they have pledged. That's what they said yeah. that they're going to do. But I think, and so I was listening to some other, um, you know, some other experts as well yeah. in this field, and they were saying maybe it might it might get pushed another five years. It could be yeah. thirty five because twenty thirty. Yeah, I don't think it's we quite have soon, isn't it? Yeah, the thing is, yeah. is that if we're if we're going to get rid of diesel cars and petrol cars. That means, and they were saying by twenty thirty five at the moment. Currently, they're gonna get, they're gonna try and get rid of even mm. hybrid cars as well. Mm, so, uh-huh. but 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 the the thing so is, it that will be only electric. Only cars, electric. That's what they want. But that's the thing. We don't have enough infrastructure yeah. for that. We, we don't have. We that. can't facilitate it. Right. We can't facilitate yeah. for that because there needs to be a lot of charges on every road. on every single yeah, road, literally. literally. <coughs> and uh, the thing is, is that we do have we do have. You know, quite a fair bit of uh, a fair, a fair few charges. <coughs> um, you know, electric charges as yeah, well yeah. on the road. But 
not we have to understand that not all of them are the rapid chargers yeah no just so, just touching yeah. on that i was yeah, listening yeah. to um i think yesterday yeah. um and toyota yeah who's right. a big manufacturer of cars yeah. and they've said that they've had a breakthrough in batteries okay and uh, they've they've claimed that because of this new breakthrough that they've had in the battery mm. they can charge cars up to 700 miles on one charge and the charge will only take 10 minutes mm So right. it's a rapid you yeah, know how sometimes it, yeah. you have on your phone yeah the rapid you can charging. have a rapid charger as well and like maybe like half an hour you yeah. can just fully charge it yeah where so some other chargers take take quite a bit longer yeah. as well but i think it's not fully um mm, fully out. developed yeah. or yeah so but we'll that's yeah that's the, that's the thing isn't it first you know it was just piston heads diesels yeah um and uh, this was the way forward but now uh, or you know like a decade ago mm-hmm. or even a little bit more than that maybe two decades ago we got introduced to hybrid cars yeah. and that was in a way that was a breakthrough as well exactly in terms of getting low you know low low emissions yeah. as well as uh, as well as money yeah, as saving well. money yeah. economically as yeah. well because your mpg exactly. miles per gallon is is so high it's yeah. so good but especially if you're going on long drives hybrid cars are just It's, it's one of the best. It's one. It's one of the best, even in the city, even urban. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's uh, that's a really good thing mm. as well. I mean, one, you're saving money on your on your fuel because mm. you don't need to top up as much because your MPG is quite high. Yeah. Sometimes it can go up to fifty. Some either some other cars can go up to fifty five or sixty. Yeah, sixty. Depending on how yeah, you drive yeah, as well, obviously, isn't it? And But the kind of roads yeah. you. Yeah. If it's yeah, a smooth, yeah. a s- smooth, it's a smooth road, road and yeah. it's non-stop every every now and then. Yeah, then it should be you should be getting a high MPG. Should be should yeah. get a high MPG, high MPG as well. Yeah, and and it's and it's good for the environment as well. But yeah. now um, they're saying that you know we want we want to get rid of petrol, diesel yeah, cars, diesel. even hybrid cars, and yeah. we're gonna uh, the electric cars are the way forward. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, the thing is is that not the electric cars at the moment. They are way too expensive. They are expensive, and the thing is, because of all um, these new um, laws that they will bring in, ec- yeah. electric cars are going to be much higher than petrol and diesel cars. Yeah. So they they they're going up in prices. Yeah, that's true. So, but also sometimes the government does does grant you a, a grant. Yeah, give so, you. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, so it helps you out in buying an electric car. Yeah. But. Uh, Those are really, really expensive cars. They, they're the they're new really cars that come yeah. out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's the thing. So that that's one of the downfalls, isn't it? That's yeah. why a lot of people uh, don't get that. Don't get electric cars, or because or they because they simply can't afford it. Yeah. And if you want to get it on lease, or if you want to get it, pay monthly in yeah. installments. Sometimes you're paying five thousand pounds more. Exactly. At the end of exactly. the lease. And then at the uh, yeah at the end of the when your contract's finishing, you have to pay another sum. Hmm. Which is like the balloon payment. Yeah, if you want. Yeah, if you want to keep, keep the car, the car yeah. or if you want to renew yeah. and get another car, another then, car, then yeah. fine, whatever. Yeah, whatever deal they have. But to keep the car, you have to pay another lump sum. Yeah, again, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, lease is is never yours until yeah. you actually buy at yeah. the end. But that's the that's the that's the thing, and also I was listening as well to to some people, and uh, they were talking about electric cars, and they were saying that they, you know, sometimes it's it's unpredictable. So you know how we have, say, if your car breaks down. If you have a petrol car, a diesel car, um, if you have any of these cars, if your car breaks down on the road, you can put the gear in neutral, and then you can sort of move the car. If, it, if it's a fully electric car, uh, if it's a, pe- pe- a petrol or a diesel car, Answer. you're right. Okay, yeah. You can you put it in neutral, yeah, and yeah, you can move exactly. it out. That we can maneuver yeah. it out. But someone broke down somewhere, right, in an electric car. 
and there was no way to put it in neutral. And when you get stuck in an electric car, you can't move it. Mm, so it's it, sta- it, it, it stays there. Mm. And uh, if that happens in the city, then you know that's that's very dangerous. Yeah. But let's just say you know, God forbid, it happens on the motorway, and your car just stops, yeah. and you can't even move it out of the way. Yeah. That's causing um, other that, danger. I mean, that, well, that's yeah. a that's that's a. That's very dangerous. That's very I mean, dangerous. I don't even want to imagine what the pos- possibilities of that may be. That's true. That's but true. Uh, it's uh, I I personally don't think that we're there yet, or or manufacturers have actually made the mm. the electric cars, you know, so you know perfectly for for our time right now. Yeah, there needs to be an, a lot of improvement. There of needs course. to be a lot of improvement. I think. Um, and especially if it's a fully electric car and you're going on a long journey hmm. and say if you have to get to a certain destination in a certain amount of time yeah. but you run out of the charge then you have to wait that's and they wait yeah. for that charge yeah. it's quite a lot that is quite a so lot. that's why the petrol and diesel cars it's just oh, you're on the go just fill it up and then you're fill off it again. up and you're, and you're, literally, yeah, yeah. you're literally there but with the electric cars they if rapid charging does come hmm. then yes i think it will be really beneficial yeah but uh, for now we have less charges on the streets and we th- that's, the, yeah, the that's time the that it consumes. That, that's exactly what I'm saying, that the infrastructure that we have yeah. at the moment, I don't think we're there yet um, in terms of charges, mm. in terms of how to, you know, if there's a response team, what, how, how quick is the response team? Um, and also, um, it's too expensive. So, yeah, expensive. So there are, so there are, you know, these big, big factors for people mm. to actually look at yeah. and uh, consider whether they want to get an electric car or not as well. And obviously the driver is different as well. The driver is completely different. The driver is yeah. completely different. Um, and so, so some yeah. people don't enjoy the electric some cars. People, yeah, yeah, some people don't, don't enjoy that. As, uh, the fuel-powered yeah, cars. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's <laughs> so that's uh, another another take on that as well. But, you know, it, it is interesting um, to, to have this conversation as well because if we are... You know, going to get rid of the, the pe- petrol cars, diesel cars um, by the end of the decade or, you know, from a decade from mm. now, a decade from now, then, you know, I want to see, I want to see a change in the, you know, in, in the way we sort of look at it yeah. uh, from that perspective as well, from all the th- different things that we that, that we just spoke about. Mm. So it is, so it is quite important. <laughs> but I think we will get there, as in. Yeah, I mean, I, <coughs> I, I think that is the way forward yeah. now, isn't it? There's no, there's yeah. no denying it. Even you see supercars. Yeah. Um. You know, uh, they are fully electric as yeah. well. So yeah. So yeah, exactly. if, if you can imagine them being electric, mm. then, then that's, uh, <laughs> I mean, that's how it is, isn't it? Yeah. I think technology is advancing so rapidly that. Yeah. Eventually, it will come to that. Eventually, yeah, it, it will, it will come to that as well. <laughs> but um, you know, let's see, let's see, uh, what uh, what exactly happens. Yeah. Um, we're we're also talking about um, heat waves. Uh, we spoke a little bit about that as well. That there might be a heat wave. Yeah. Or there was a forecast that a heat wave might be coming as well. But the risk of the risk of mosquito-borne infections that also increases with the heat waves yeah. as well. So when the temperature goes up, when it's a bit you know moist, a bit damp. Yeah. Um, you know that's when that's when these mosquitoes come as well and, and we all know how diseases. annoying mosquitoes can be even if you yeah. have one in your house and you're trying to sleep even yeah literally. the sound died <laughs> yeah i mean uh, for, for us here living yeah. in in europe 
it's, it's not uh, as, it's, it's not as much yeah, as, yeah. as other countries as well, such exactly. as in African countries yeah, exactly. or, or or you know some Asian countries yeah. as well. But uh, you know, d- it, it is still it is still something that we need to look at as well because obviously yeah. the whole world is a global village, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, people travel here and there. Yeah. I mean, you know, people go from different to different places in the world. And obviously, when when there's a lot of um, coming, you know, in and out, people coming in, people yeah. going out, then there's a lot of diseases. There's a lot of diseases travel that around, travel yeah. around as well. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, and uh, and obviously, uh, you know, you you, you get malaria hmm. from mosquitoes. From the mosquitoes as well. And that's one of the biggest uh, causes of death around the world right now. Anyway. It, so, I mean that that's the thing, isn't it? That's the thing, yeah. and how and how much you know in this sort of weather it yeah. increases yeah. even more so. Exactly. So we're going to be talking about these two topics, and uh, hopefully, you know, it will be an interesting discussion uh, when we go through that. As so we spoke to a few guests that um, that will come up and uh, and uh, you know speak to us, but we just speak to some some other guests as well. So we'll play those. Um, pre-recordings as well for for the benefit of our listeners as well. Um, it's because you know talk, just talking a little bit about what uh, what uh, Rishi Sunak actually, you know, the Prime Minister, what he actually said or what he pledged. Um, so there's an article which talks about six months ago, Rishi Sunak set out five pledges. Um, that he would actually look into and he would actually cater as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, t- inverted commas, the people's priorities, anyway, or who put that who put that forward. So he said this, there was um, di- different things that he mentioned. So inflation was one of the things yeah. that he mentioned. So in January, um, the prime minister said that the government would half inflation this year to ease the cost of living and people and, and give people financial security half oh. inflation yeah he said that in january okay now so, it's, yeah. so yeah so the prime minister said that halving inflation you know which was at 10.7% mm-hmm. um would be part of a plan to restoring inflation to the bank of england's target of 2% um and this was seen as the most achievable of sunak's pledges however it's proven more difficult um, than forecasters expected. Yeah. Um, at, at, at the start of the year, as, infla- as inflation remains stubbornly high, and we can see that. Mm. We can see the the effects of that the as well. Of that, yeah. And inflation actually remains stuck at eight point seven percent in May, uh, with the figure not expected to reduce much by June. And mm. uh, this is the thing, uh, as well. So if it's still at eight point seven percent or more or less that, then what it was ten point seven percent. I don't know how we're gonna. I don't know how we're gonna half that. Yeah. As well. To achieve that goal, I think is, it is a big challenge. It is a big challenge. It and I think him um, claiming that we will half it. It was a big. Yeah. I mean, he did th- seem that it, it might be optim. He was optimistic yeah. for it, and he did think that it was achievable. Yeah. But, um, you know, eight point seven percent, um, in in May yeah. and June, it sort of stayed the same as well. So. Yeah. Um, let's see. Let's see what uh, you know. And, what, and what happens? And and news just came out also that um, you know the mortgage hmm. interest rates yeah. are basically going to rise four more times in 2023. Yeah. So four more times. Yeah. yeah in in the year. In, in the year. So, yeah. so three, six months left. Exactly. Um, 
So and you <laughs> see how high yeah. it is already. You see how high it is already. And if it's going to be even higher and it's going to go up four more times, then yeah, it's just uh, it's just um, causing everyone a lot of um, mm. not not pain, but it's hard to it it's defined, time, financially. Yeah. It's really hard to survive now nowadays yeah. Yeah. for for the average person. And when you when you hear these kind of news, obviously mm. they it doesn't help. Yeah, for the average person in in the UK. Exactly. Exactly. But, but what, one of the other things that he that he pledged was uh, economic growth. Yeah. And uh, as part of his uh, five pledges, he promised to grow the economy and create better paid jobs across the UK. Now, um, if we just look at what's happening right now, so currently the eco- the economy is at, is actually flattening, and uh, and high interest rates, just as you mentioned as well, mm-hmm. uh, which increases the threat of the UK tipping into recession, also making the pledge more challenging to accomplish as well um, but he, but they are saying that or Downing Street is saying that the economy uh, is an area where we have made ground and we are predicting to fall into a recession and that that has not happened or we were predicted to fall into a recession that hasn't happened yeah. this, that's what he said on Monday that the Prime Minister mm. that's what he said on Monday and uh, <coughs> the unemployment rate has actually dropped to 3.8 percent by by June, which was expected to rise to 4 percent, but figures show that 250,000 people people or more people who were in work as well. Mm. So you know, let's see, let's see. I mean, he did promise economic growth. Let's mm. uh, let's see, we let's see what happens as well for the remainder of the year. Yeah, reducing the national debt as well. Was um, that one of his promises? That is also one of his promises. Another promise is uh, cutting NHS waiting lists. Hmm. Um, a lot of people would be, you know, would would, you know, would be willing um, to sacrifice anything for that as well. I mean, yeah. the prime minister actually pledged at the start of the year that lists will fall and people will actually get the care that they need more quickly. Hmm. Um, but when he made the promise in January, seven point two million people were waiting for routine hospital treatment. Hmm. Um, and, I, now, and, and as you know, like today yeah. is the seventy fifth anniversary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seventy fifth anniversary of the NHS as well. Yeah. And, and I was hearing a lot of positive um, stuff from some of the guests hmm. on um, one of the radio stations. Hmm. Yeah. Because obviously, obviously, when there, there is positivity, there is positivity <laughs> yeah. about, the, about the NHS. But um, because of the crisis that we're living going through right now, a hmm. lot of the down uh, sides of it come out. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, obviously, as if, you mentioned, if there are cuts, of, if yeah. there are cuts in the yeah. NHS, if a lot of the do- the the doctors and nurses are leaving, hmm. a lot of the key workers are leaving, then yeah. it just puts everyone into a difficult situation, isn't yeah. it? But what option do they have as well? Exactly. So we can't sort of blame them in hmm. that way, as well. But now, so in 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 January, seven point two million people were waiting or waiting for routine hospital treatment right mm. so now there's an estimated 7.4 million and reversing the trend will be more difficult um you know so because of up. strikes yeah it's gone up by by 0.2 million yeah right? so that's 200,000 yeah um but th- that's the thing we, we're talking about staffs leaving we're talking about staff uh, going on, on strike, strike yeah. um you know because of the pay conditions and uh, worker shortages as well. Yeah. But the Prime Minister admitted industrial action by doctors and nurses has made it harder to achieve this, his aim, but said that long waits 
are being eliminated steadily but surely. Mm. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's, that's the thing. And the the other thing, which uh, prime with the prime minister actually promised or pledged as well, which which was controlling illegal immigration. Uh, that's it's it's interesting as well because um, you know to seek asylum yeah. is uh, is legal. Yeah, and uh, and how you know coming into a country and, then and seeking refuge that that's legal. Yeah, right. So how I mean, uh, f- f- but for then, me, this but is then a you bit know when they come into the country, that's legal. Yeah, yeah that's legal. Yeah, um, it's illegal, right? And then they send them off to. I mean, they. That's the new law that they've they're they, trying that, to implement. That's, that's the thing. That's that, that's the thing, isn't it? They're saying that people who come from uh, from migrant boats yeah. are crossing the channel, right? Um, they're trying to sort of get rid of that. Yeah. They're trying to stop that. Yeah. But but one thing is, some one one thing we need to understand is that you know we can't just we can't if, if somebody is coming to a country. Yeah, and is in right, need. As in need, yeah. literally, they they they've lost they they they've left their 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 house, they've left yeah, their, their everything, home. their their families. Yeah. Uh, you know, their extended fa- sometimes yeah. they come with their families, but they're basically reaching they're, out for a helping reaching hand. Reaching out for exactly. a helping hand. And yeah. for for a government to say that you know, um, you know, you can go back to your own country or you're illegal, we're gonna, oh. you know, or go to jail or this and that. Yeah. yeah, that you know, it's yeah. a bit. You I know, think if we if we look at um, if we put ourselves in their boats, basically, yeah, and um, visualize that how we will feel hmm. if, if we, we were in their yeah, position. if we if we were in their position, we came for asking for help, and then we were told that yeah, no, you can go to a different country. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, how we would how, feel. How yeah. would that make you feel? Isn't exactly. It? Exactly. So I think you know Islamic teaching um, where the Holy Prophet says that um, like for yourself, hmm. what you like for uh, li- like for others, what you like for yourself. Yeah. I think that's what comes into that's play key. here. Yeah. yeah, that's key. And it I makes mean, you feel more appreciated or makes you want to help others exactly, even more. Exactly. I mean, if we just if we literally treat other people the way that we would want yeah. to be treated. Um, the whole yeah. world will be a much better place, much better place in, all, exactly. in, in all different fronts mm. but th- that's the thing isn't it sometimes we neglect it sometimes we overlook this or sometimes we think that we are superior and they are inferior inferior yeah but if the tables were turned yeah. then we you know we would also mm. want to get saved as well exactly exactly so that that's why that's why it's important for us to you know look at each case as well yeah. obviously there's a reason why people are coming into the country by by mm. difficult means as well. i mean crossing mm. the channel it's not it's not it's easy. not it's so not people easy. people lose their lives and that literally yeah. literally we saw what happened um in the with, with the boat which was cro- cro- yeah. crossing um which was greece isn't it yeah 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 um and uh, i believe it was and then they they literally lost Great. their lives they got shipwrecked or something yeah yeah and they lost their lives um obviously mm. they were there was, there was not a lot of uh, media coverage but there was not a lot of media coverage because the submarine was yeah. at the same yeah, time as well, wasn't same it? Time, yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's yeah. it's a very um, harsh situation to be in. Yeah, and we should be first of all be grateful the situation that we have, and mm. after being grateful, we need to go and um, reach our hand out to help those people that are in need and exactly. asking for help. Exactly. Exactly. So these are the topics uh, that we are going to be talking about. We're um, we're talking about this, uh, you know, basalt could uh, be the sort of, uh, that could be the substance, um, you know, the process when it goes through the process of enhanced rock weathering 
um, to help uh, climate change. And also we're going to be talking about these mosquito-borne infectious diseases as well. 0208-687-7878 is the number for you to call. And we'll be back after a short break. Writings of the Promised Messiah, alayhi salam. Allah, the Lord of glory, has also given me the glad tidings that some of the nobility and some of the kings will also join our group. He vouchsafed to me the revelation. I shall grant you blessing upon blessing, so much so that kings will seek blessings from your garments. Those who seek blessings in this manner will enter into the bath, the Pledge of Allegiance. Because of their entering into the bath, their governments will also practically belong to this community. Then I was shown those kings in a vision. They were riding upon horses and were not less than six or seven. I saw in a blessed dream a group of sincere believers and just and righteous kings, some of whom belong to this country, India, some to Arabia, some to Iran, some to Syria, some to Turkey, and some to other regions of which I am not aware. Thereafter, I was told by Allah the Almighty, these people will affirm your righteousness and will believe in you and will call down blessings upon you and will pray for you. I shall bestow great blessings upon you, so much so that kings will seek blessings from your garments and I will join them amongst your sincere followers. This is the dream that I saw and this is the revelation that was vouchsafed to me by God the All-Knowing. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show. As mentioned, we are talking about this, um, this, uh, or, you know, what scientists believe that basalt going through the process of enhanced rock weathering um, could actually help remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And this is um, what we, what we want to, you know, what we want to talk about as well. We've, um, you know, we're going to be speaking to a few guests uh, also, and they will, uh, you know, shed a little bit uh, more light uh, for the benefit of our, of our listeners. Uh, as well um now the the thing it can be a little bit technical as well but uh if there is something if we can find something or if we have found something that can sort of reduce um carbon emissions yeah. carbon dioxide from the <laughs> atmosphere and that can actually be key to help uh, fight climate change then that's uh, that's you know that's that's a very positive uh, you know discovery um let's speak to dr dr uh, steve smith the scientist at the university of oxford where he leads the uk's <coughs> research hub on green, greenhouse gas removals called uh called core c-o-2-r-e peace be upon you and good morning to the show good morning thanks for having me thank you so much for for being with us to start off, please could you, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us a little bit more about uh, about CORE, CO2, RE, uh, Greenhouse Gas Removal Hub. 
Yeah, so it's um, a research project. It's a collaboration amongst researchers in different universities throughout the UK. So um, it's led uh, by me out of the University of Oxford, but it involves seven other um, universities. And we're all focused on this question of um, are there ways we can actually remove greenhouse gases, especially carbon dioxide, from the atmosphere. So uh, we work with several projects that are trialling different methods of doing that because there are different potential ways you can do it. Um, And we're looking at the fundamentals of uh, do they work? Um, But also, if we want to scale these up and make them genuine climate solutions, there's a whole bunch of other questions that go beyond just the technical questions. There are issues like... um, do, do people actually like and want these technologies in their own communities? Yeah. Um, do, do they cost? Um, are they cost effective? How much do they cost? Who's going to pay? Or are there wider benefits? Um, are there risks to the wider environment, to trees, soils, and air? Or what kind of um, business models or policies are actually going to scale them up? So we're actually a, a group of researchers from all sorts of different disciplines, whether it's economics, law, psychology, Um, physics, biology, and we're all looking at this question of can we scale different greenhouse gas removal techniques effectively and sustainably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So just uh, uh, coming towards this enhanced rock weathering, um, what what exactly is that? So um, certain rocks weather as part of Earth's natural cycle, Earth's carbon cycle. Um, So um, over time, Uh, with the action of air and rain, um, they actually take CO2 from the atmosphere and they turn it into rocks and minerals, um, either kind of solid minerals in in the rocks and soils or it becomes part of sort of dissolved um, carbonates in the the water and in the ocean. And enhanced Mm. weathering is is a way of doing greenhouse gas removal that aims to essentially speed up that process Um, because it normally happens very slowly. But if you take certain rocks Uh, particularly sort of volcanic rocks like basalt, for instance. Mm. And if you crush them up so that they react faster, um, one one way of doing enhanced rock weathering, for instance, is to take uh, rock that's already crushed up from mining operations and you can spread it on land, you can spread it on agricultural land. And uh, if you do that well, uh, it's one process people are looking at and you might even get some kind of extra agricultural benefit. So your crops might grow better as well as these ground-up bits of rock uh, mm. soaking up CO2 as well. Right, right. Just just talking about the carbon dioxide uh, for a minute as well, wh- wh- why is it important for carbon dioxide to be sort of removed from the atmosphere? Right, so um, we know, of course, that uh, we're causing a lot of climate problems from the fact that we're dumping about 40 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every year globally. Um, Mm. that's carbon dioxide we're digging out from under the ground in the form of coal, oil and gas and we're burning for energy we get a lot of benefit from the energy of course uh, but that is changing the climate that's pretty clear and we also know that actually uh, the impact of that fossil carbon dioxide on the climate is effectively permanent so when we put a ton of CO2 into the atmosphere from burning coal, oil or gas it raises the global temperature and the global temperature stays elevated for for millennia, so effectively permanent for mm. most of our interests. Yeah. Um, that means that if we w- actually want to stop global temperature rise at any level, whether that's a sort of one and a half degrees or two degrees that's been globally agreed through the Paris Agreement, or 
four or five degrees, if we want to stop temperature rising, we're going to have to get uh, those emissions down to zero. Or to the extent we can't get them fully down to zero in time, we might actually need some ways of getting the stuff back out of the atmosphere. So it's a bit like, you know, other environmental problems with littering. Obviously, the first thing to do is stop littering, stop chucking stuff into the environment. Yeah. But we also have, you know, um, street sweepers and, and litter pickers. We go out and tidy up the, the litter as well as aiming to cut our, our additions of waste into the atmosphere so or into the environment. So greenhouse gas removal is a bit like going out and cleaning up the stuff that we've already put into the atmosphere. Mm. Yeah, and Doctor, you just you touched upon uh, in, enhanced rock weathering. How much of a difference to the climate could enhanced rock weathering actually make? So at the moment, it's, it's a kind of relatively new idea, and uh, there's a lot of science going on. We're working with one particular uh, group of scientists up at Sheffield who uh, are doing some field trials of this in the UK, and there are one or two other projects going on around the UK uh, and other parts of the world. But it's, it's pretty early stage, and there's a lot of um, interesting and important science to do to, to really measure, for instance, how quickly the rocks can take up the CO2 and where that CO2 ultimately goes. Um, but there has been a study, for instance, looking at the UK, and if um, we applied uh, enhanced rock weathering to pretty much as much agricultural land as we could in the UK, then if things went well, it could soak up maybe six to 30 million tonnes of CO2 per year by 2050. Mm. 2050 is when we're committed to get to net zero emissions here in the UK. So that's six to 13 million tonnes is a lot, mm. but it's sort of two to 10% of current uh, emissions in the UK. So if it works really well, and if we rolled it out really fast, it could make a dent, it wouldn't solve the whole thing. Mm. Um, but it's at a fairly early stage at the moment. Okay, um, it's fairly early stages. Then um, are there any other methods out there for carbon removal? Yeah, there's there's a lot. Um, and they range from things that are very familiar, such as planting trees. Mm. Trees are a great way of removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Yeah. Um, right through to enhanced rock weathering, through to um, working the land in different ways. So if we change the way that we uh, till soils or if we put cover crops in in between growing agricultural crops for food, there's a way, there, there are ways of putting more carbon into soils. Then you range through to slightly more sort of engineering-y methods and, and other slightly more novel and unusual ones. Uh, we can um, actually take kind of residues from agriculture or residues from managing forests and we can turn that into a solid material called biochar, like charcoal. That's another thing that can be added to soil mm. and it kind of stabilises the carbon and can give a crop benefit. And then there are people working on things like direct air capture where you actually have uh, machines or factories with uh, with clever chemistry that actually take CO2 directly out of the atmosphere, convert it into a pure stream of CO2 mm. and then bury that underground. There's a really interesting project in Iceland, for instance, uh, which is doing that. It's mm. essentially turning atmospheric carbon mm. into rocks. Uh, it's very new, it's very expensive, but people are looking at a whole different a range of ways to do greenhouse gas removal at the moment. Mm. And uh, if enhanced rock weathering does come into effect, does this mean that we can start worrying less about other emissions like coal, gas, power stations, etc.? Right. Um, I think greenhouse gas removal is going to play a role, um, but it definitely doesn't change the story about needing to move away from coal, oil and gas where we can 
and that and there are a whole range of actions we know how to do now uh, and are cost effective to do now might even save us money or cost less than having to tidy up the waste when it's already gone into the atmosphere so things like insulating homes using more efficient led light bulbs uh switching away from uh standard petrol diesel cars to uh electric vehicles or maybe even public transport walking cycling more um switching away eventually from gas boilers to maybe electric heat pumps or other forms of heating all of those things i think are going to be crucial to do and if we are very ambitious on cutting our emissions and if we're also very ambitious on scaling up greenhouse gas removal then i think that's when we're into having a chance of meeting our climate targets yeah okay yeah thank you very much dr steve for joining us and giving us very beneficial information thank you thank you very much that that was uh, dr smith who was a scientist at the university of oxford yeah and he did provide a lot of beneficial information to us yeah i, I think it's uh, important for all of us and we 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 touched upon this in the beginning isn't yeah. it how the, i mean we are shifting from uh, from from fuel, fuel uh, to, electric, know, to, yeah. to to electric as well because of the emissions isn't because it? of the emissions i exactly. think one other thing he mentioned that you know planting trees um yeah. plays a really big role yeah in um lowering these emissions yeah. which our ladies organization in our community yeah. also they've taken a lead yeah, in, in they've that, taken a lead in, in that, that well. and they go and then they plant yeah, i mean we we can talk a little bit about that a uh, little bit yeah. later on as well um but uh, at the moment we've got our next guest who we're going to be speaking to dr alan redborn who's from the uk center of ecology and hydrology as well peace be upon you good morning welcome to the show hello good morning dr alan um your your research what has your research sort of shown so far yeah so we um our demonstrator is based in mid wales as mm. part of uh, the preliminary research catchment so this long term study of environmental data and and i have to admit our demonstrator is very much on the extreme of where this enhanced rock weathering might take place um so this is an upland grassland um you know picture wales and this mountainous area filled with grass and sheep that's kind of where we're trying to test um the part that we are working on um because these are very contested landscapes mm. around what actually should um what should these uplands be used for and one of the thoughts is should they be burying carbon should they be doing something like this and one of the co-benefits one of the additional things that can happen with anthrop weathering is this improvement of uh, vegetation because the changes in the soil chemistry means that the the grass quality to be able to kind of feed sheep or cattle or so on um, could be improved mm. um so we're trying to see if actually this would be feasible if it's actually worthwhile doing and considering for policy in the future um in in these kind of upland catchments like we are part of a much wider um project as well that are looking at lowland catchments mm. um so Rothamsted research are doing some uh lowland grass and lowland arable kind of the more bread and butter where this enhanced rock weathering um can and actually already is taking place like commercially this this enhanced rock weathering is gaining pace very very quickly people mm. are becoming more and more interested in it so we're really trying to understand um the the benefits but also the trade-offs of if this was applied much wider um as a technology for carbon removal mm-hmm. mm. 
Doctor, we're, we're sort of, sort of, uh, or the government as well, they are sort of trying to reduce um, petrol, diesel cars as well and g- pushing towards the more electric cars as well. You, you're from the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. Is there any sort of progress in hydro, uh, hydro energy or hydro pump cars or something like that? Um, that's a good question. I wouldn't actually be able to answer that directly. Mm. Um, yeah, we uh, we very much look at the environmental data and the impact of these sort of um, assessments across a broad, broad spectrum of the environment. But but yeah, that sort of technology, I personally, sorry, mm. don't have an expertise that's in. Fine. Coming back to your research then, um, yeah. that was interesting listening to that as well, but are there any <coughs> limitations, if any, um, in that? Yeah, there's potentially challenges. Like I say, we so our demonstrator is very much on the extreme end of where this the scalability aspect of this enhanced rock weathering could take place. So we're trying to see like how feasible it is. Like our contractor that we um, hired was very specialist, driving up some very steep slopes hmm. um, in you know a very remote part of Mid Wales, and um, for scalability for this to really have a big impact in what we need to um, do with our carbon, then we're trying to see if it is feasible in this area. And, and there's, there's, some, there's lots of benefits. And so far, the, um, the data is really promising for enhanced rock weathering. There's lots of people very excited by it. And, and it has a great potential as um, a soil improver, but then also locking up um, lots of carbon over geological timescales, which is great. Um, but there are potentially some trade-offs that we need to keep in the balance with this. And that's what we're trying to understand more of um, how will this change the vegetation on the ground. So if you're spreading this on some nice, natural, low-nutrient areas, unimproved areas, then are we potentially going to lose some of the diversity in our vegetation? Or Mm. how is it going to change the pH so the chemical competition of the water so that then it um, might change all the little bugs and critters that like to live in a very specific type of environment. Are we going to kind of change that and potentially damage that or or maybe improve that in some areas? Hmm. So we're trying to look and see kind of what is the feasibility and scalability of this technology. Yeah. And um, to to what extent do you think that... um this um, rock-enhanced uh, weathering can reverse the effects of climate change? Yeah, it is rapidly evolving, um, mm. this technology. Like, already there are... Um, like, last week I met a company who are trying to do this commercially already, and they're doing some great things, really are trying to go about it in the best way. Mm. Um, and policy is really trying to play catch up in understanding what impacts this could have. Mm. But the theory behind it and the early data does look really promising, mm. but much more research needs to be done to mm. really understand the benefits in the real world and the possible trade-offs in all these different landscapes on mm. all of our different soil types. And, you know, the UK has a very, very diverse, soil and environmental sort of setup that rock dust in some areas is almost yet great go for it in others it it might be more challenging Mm. so the key thing i must stress with all of this though like with 
studying this technology is fantastic and has great potential maybe as we understand more about it but the thing i must stress is like this is not a silver bullet hmm. this does not mean that we can keep going the way we are and this just be used to offset our carbon appetite hmm. like the more important thing is that we tackle our own carbon consumption like carbon removal technologies hmm. like this hmm. are not the solution they are just part of the whole Mm. They're part of the whole system, the way that we reverse this trend of us consuming too much carbon. Mm. So, but if we can reduce what we use and then use these kind of technologies to, um, to just help with that bit that we just can't quite shift yet mm. or to kind of begin to actually draw down more and reverse this, like that's the important thing. Um, mm. so, 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 yeah, so this isn't the answer to everything. But maybe it's part of the answer. So this doesn't mean that we can just carry on and um, keep emitting the carbon gases from our cars and just not worry about those sort of um, emissions. Yeah, exactly. Definitely yeah. not. This is this is not going to be able to do that. But it's the unavoidable things, or just naturally as humans, we are going to produce some carbon, um, and we can try and get to net zero in the best way that we can, and that should always be our first aim. But things like this, um, the more that we can understand about how we can utilise these sort of technologies, the, the quicker that we can get to that point, but also then the more sustainably we can manage that going forwards. Absolutely, absolutely. Dr. Allen, it's been a pleasure speaking to you as well, and uh, it was good that we reconnected uh, with you. Yeah, <laughs> thank you for sticking with me. Uh, thank you, th thank you for joining us uh, this morning thank as well. Thank you. So that was uh, Dr. Alan Redbourne uh, from the UK's Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, uh, Hydrology, and uh, very interesting listening to him uh, as well. So, like he said, it's it's the process, isn't it? Yeah. This is this is just part of the process. I part mean, we process. can't say that this is you know one hundred percent. This is going to as be in we need to the thing, but lower the emissions. Yeah, yeah. And with that, we need the rocket. With that, we need this. Yeah, with that we, we need this. We can't just fully stop, rely on this basically, <laughs> yeah, and carry exactly. on what we're doing. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. We're talking about um, planting trees before us all, yeah. and uh, because deforestation is a major, yeah. major thing, right? And uh, a lot of a lot of um, <coughs> trees get chopped down for obviously a lot of purposes. Yeah. I mean, trees are quite vital. But if we don't produce new trees or plant new trees, yeah. then, you know, it, how, you know, it's, it, the, the, the... The oxygen that we consume to, to, it's gonna to be, be alive. It's going to decrease. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that's that's why it's so important as well. And this is one of the initiatives of the women's or the auxiliary organizations, just like you mentioned, mm. and they have taken a lead in that in that as well in accordance with the instructions of his holiness the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya muslim community um the fifth caliph of the promised messiah upon whom be peace um we'll continue this uh, in just uh, after the news as well You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. Welcome back to The Breakfast Show here on The Voice of Islam Radio. We uh, were privileged to speak to Professor Waltrot Craven. Um, and, uh, you know, let's listen to, let's listen to what, she, what she had to say. 
Um, so we're talking mainly about climate change and how we can sort of tackle climate change as well, because it is a pressing issue um, in this day and age. How can different different minerals and chemicals and other things in the air, the atmosphere, such as basalt, how can that be used to, to combat climate change? Right. Well, um, uh, that's one area that I've been working on. It's called geopolymers or geological polymers or mineral polymers. They're basalt. Uh, I mean, no, geopolymers are aluminosilicates. They can be made from clay, um, but they can also be made from amorphous basalt, which exists not only on Earth, but also on the Mars and on the Moon. And actually, we could be building structures there as well. Um, geopolymers are inorganic polymers. You know, in, in the, normally plastics are organic polymers. These are like mineral polymers, inorganic polymers. And the building blocks are silica and alumina. And, and if you take clay, uh, clay that's, uh, for example, kaolinite, it's crystalline. But if you heat it, then it becomes amorphous and, it, and um, it, it has a little bit unstable amorphous structure. And now you can mix that with an alkali solution, such as sodium hydroxide, in which is already dissolved some silica as well. So you mix the clay powder with a silica under high shear, and then they make a paste, and then they cross-link and set and uh, that's sort of now like a glue. And um, then you can add all sorts of reinforcements to it, like sand or chopped fibres or biological fibres. Um, so now, uh, the, the aluminosilicate, this is a, a glue, an inorganic glue. And right now, in the interest of global warming, we're looking for an alternative to cements because to make mm. one tonne of Portland cement, you liberate about one tonne of CO2, which is a lot because CO2 is a very light element. And, but if you make one tonne of geopolymers, you only liberate a quarter of a tonne of CO2. But geopolymer composites are very strong, just as strong as cements in compression and three to five times stronger in flexure. Um, and, and so they got better mechanical properties. Um, and now uh, basalt, uh, it comes from volcanic ash. Uh, it's also an aluminosilicate. So if you, uh, now if basalt is crystalline, it, it can't be used to make geopolymers. Um, but, it can, but if it's amorphous, you can use it because it's an amorphous aluminosilicate source, which can be used. Um, so now the basalt, I uh, looked at your webpage, and uh, it, one way of sequestering CO2, well, you could, um, you could uh, take that crystalline particulate basalt, which is like a sand, and use that to reinforce geopolymers made from clay. Uh, to get to get the um, clay to be reactive, you have to heat at 750C for two hours, which um, and that only just releases water into the atmosphere. Versus, if you want to make cement, you have to heat 1400C, 1500 for, for a long time, and that pumps out CO2 in the atmosphere. So we're we're working in the area of making geopolymers and and uh, sort of uh, uh, as ceramic materials, but also as an alternative to cements. Uh, one uh, current application is to use um, mine tailings. You, you know, in Canada here in Labrador, they produce 300 million tonnes of basalt from mine tailings. Not basalt, but aluminosilicates like basalt. Uh, basalt comes from volcanoes. These are mine tailings. These can also um, be uh, valorised. It's called valorisation of mine tailings and, and used as an aluminosilicate source to make geopolymers. So with a basalt, if it's amorphous, we could make geopolymers... If the basalt's not amorphous but crystalline, we could use it as a reinforcement for the millions of tons of mine tailings around. And then we do see a path on how to um, tackle global warming. 
by substituting for cement. Uh, another thing I saw on your website was about the sand. Uh, that We've already written a research paper. We've we got about 334 research papers, but one of them is about using dolomite sand as a reinforcement for geopolymers, and uh, it works. It gives flexure strength of 15 megapascals. Normally, high, uh, Portland cement is 3 to 5 megapascals. So, um, so some the, the crystalline basalt could be used as a reinforcement. And that dolomite, that, or, or uh, calcium carbonate that you get from... CO2 reaction uh, could be used as a reinforcement. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting. So this is this is a way to sort of uh, combat climate change, isn't it? Because as you know, as you, as you mentioned, it's it's much better than using clay and other substances as well. Um, but is it is it cost effective though? It might be better for the climate in the long run, but is it is it cost effective? That's the big question. Well, right now, clay. Um, the way I'm not, um, yeah, cements is not clay. Cements are uh, allite, belite, tricalcium aluminate, tetracalcium aluminosilicate, which is allite is three calcium one silica, belite is two calcium one silica, tricalcium aluminate is three calcium one alumina, tetracalcium aluminoferrite is four calcium one alumina, uh, one uh, Fe2O3. So that's a 10 no, 12 molecules of uh, calcium that all comes from decomposing calcium carbonate. Uh, we, we, we want to get away from that. And um, now you said, is it cost effective? Right yes. now, dolomite, uh, no, right now, metacalin clay is made by Bathef in Germany, okay, the Bathef company from Germany, and Emery's from France. And um, here they, um, they charge uh, $340 a tonne, uh, but they, uh, they just sold one plant and it went up to $440 or something. But that's if you want to sort of make high-tech applications with geopolymers. So, for example, uh, well, we just made how to filter arsenic out of water, how to filter mercury out of water. So there's a bunch of high-tech applications of geopolymers made from clay. However, the low-tech, oh, well, low-tech to me, the industrial building material applications, roads, buildings, construction materials, that could be made from uh, mine tailings, and in fact, the mine tailing, the companies should pay you to take it away from them. Actually, we're working in that area now. Uh, mine tailings uh, are aluminosilicates plus impurities plus sulfurs. Now, um, I've already gotten some mine tailings from uh, from Michigan Way here, and they produce. They had a lot of quartz, so I said, "Oh, thank you. That's a free re reinforcement for geopolymers." Yeah, how many tons can you give me? But then uh, the mine tailings that contain sulfur, we can remove the sulfur and we can uh, sort of get, get sulfuric acid or sulfur out and that leaves aluminosilicates. And um, now if they're crystalline, uh, then we would use them as uh, reinforcements for geopolymers. If they're amorphous, then we'd use them to make geopolymers. So um, they could be, the answer to your question is they could be <clears throat> quite um, lucrative, low cost, another industry I mean, the, the, mine, the companies producing the tailings should pay us to take it away and um, valorize it and make cements out of it and put the cements business out of <laughs> the cements companies out of business. But I guess they don't want to hear that, but that's the way it is scientifically. Yeah. There is a path. Interesting, interesting. Uh, it's just interesting listening to what you, what you just said there uh, as well. Um, Professor, when it, comes, when it comes to carbon capture, you spoke a little bit about this as well, but what's the importance? What's the importance of that? Well, yeah, well, we've got to do whatever we can to get the carbon level down. And yeah. we've just submitted three patents to the University of Illinois here, and they've acted on them and submitted uh, one to the U.S. Patents Office and another one. Yeah, they just did the other second one yesterday. Um, one, the, one breakthrough that we've made is how to make porous geopolymers. 
And we've um, uh, used that, not just the geopolymers, we've added a sequestering agent uh, to um, sequester out arsenic from underground water. The Pakistani government sent me a PhD student for six months and then I paid him another six months and we, we made a breakthrough that um, we could make porous geopolymers. And um, we uh, put the sequestering agent in and we can now filter out arsenic from water. And also we could heavy metals like mercury. So we use the geoporous geopolymer as a scaffolding. And so mm. now our next proposal that we're working on right now is use that porous geopolymer scaffolding and uh, for CO2 sequestering, um, coating it with some uh, organic molecules that sequester CO2 and um, then we could use, you know, once it's carbonated, uh, we could use that for roads or construction materials or, or things like that. There is a, a method now for pumping it down, but our method is simpler. And um, using geopolymers, we could also clean up, you know, like a, a dam or a river that's got arsenic and heavy metals in it. So this is a, as a rising area of geopolymers. They're halfway between cements and ceramics. They're inorganic polymers made like a cement but can behave like a ceramic if you heat it up. But they can be scaled up so we can uh, build little 3D printed objects out of it or construction materials. And they're stronger than cements. And I think that's the way to go. But we've got to show the how to use waste products like mine tailings. Oh, there's also black glass um, in London. Right. Like uh, you collect the rubbish every, every week, you know, you put your garbage out. And um, that, it goes to some plasma plant and then that melts it all down and you get black glass. So I, told the, I was invited to a conference of the um, you know, European Ceramic Society there one year and I told my colleague about it and he, sure enough he did try it. And you can make geopolymers from black glass, which is a, a, a plasma heated garbage. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Any any other substances that that's sort of coming about, uh, which you think that maybe in the near future, or maybe even in a decade from now, or longer than that, we're sort of mm. looking to progress towards? Well, any other substance? Uh, well, we, um, we've been focusing on um, aluminosilicates, you know, sand and clays. They're everywhere. Uh, um, well, not, not everywhere, but they're usable. Um, this is a case of an inorganic polymer. There may be zincates that do it and cuprates, but it hasn't. It hasn't been invented yet, <laughs> but we're like material science, and so we just do systematic, uh, basic science and get the chemistry right. But we've been studying it for 20 years, um, and I've I, I've been uh, championing it in the American Ceramic Society. Every year we have a international symposium on geopolymers, uh, and that's in Florida in January. And uh, I've edited the conference proceedings, so I've edited 20 books on it from 20 years. Uh, and I've also we published about 84 papers with, a, uh, with definitely another 15 papers to go. Um, but um, there are groups of people in Europe too. Uh, there's uh, in Italy and in Germany, in, in Berlin and Dresden and Italy, Padua, various places in Italy. Uh, that, and we, I just came back from the World Conference on Geopolymers that I was uh, a co-organizer co on it was in Calabria, Italy, and the next one oh. will probably be in Ulu, Finland, in two years from now. Um, it's a it's a rising area um, as an alternative to cements. So you know, I guess we scientists we better watch out and not go down any dark alleys at night because <laughs> the cements industry not too keen on it. But they um, they are working with supplementary cementitious materials they're sort of in the right track but they're about 10% of along the way we're already 90% there you know 
Um, but it takes a while for a research from academia to get out into commercialization. Uh, right now, I'm, my research is funded by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. They've been funding this for three or four years, or three years, and uh, under a congressional mandate, Congress gave the money. And um, they're very interested in finding applications. Also, right now, I'm talking to the Illinois State Geological Survey, and uh, they're interested in... Oh, here in Illinois, we've got 200 years' worth of coal mines, just like you folks have coal mines up there. Well, these coal mines uh, leave tailings, you know, and, and these tailings actually here uh, contain uh, rare earth oxides. So the State Geological Survey is going to filter out the rare earth oxides and leave us the tailings. And, we, and they're going to filter um, out by washing with sulfuric acid. And usually everybody thinks, oh, that's terrible. All the sulfuric acid is going to go into underground water. But we know how to deal with that. Uh, my, my postdoc did a PhD on it back in Istanbul, actually. He's Iranian, but uh, he did his PhD in, um, in Turkey uh, with my PhD, who's a professor there at Sabanji University. And um, so he figured out how to, uh, how to get sulfur out of these mine tailings. And so now we can, um, all these, you know, hundreds of millions of tons of, mine tailings can be used, cleaned up and used as a raw material to make cements. And they're already ground up, you know, so, we, so, um, so they should pay us to take it away. <laughs> we say probably won't. But anyway, uh, but they are already paying to the federal government lots of money to be able to deposit the mine tailings uh, uh, because it's an environmental hazard. So that, those mine tailings have to be treated and cleaned up and can be used to make cements. Even in Labrador, up, up in Canada, uh, Newfoundland, they, uh, that, that government there, I mean, the company there makes a hundred, uh, 300 million tonnes of mine tailings when they dig for gold. So the Canadian government said to them, don't make any more mine tailings till you figure out what you're going to do with them. So uh, I'm trying to get a hold of some and uh, see, see if I can help them. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, yes, but now I'm getting yeah. off track. I'm talking to you about geopolymers. But I could see the basalt, um, yeah, well, funny you should mention that. Uh, the basalt, um, I have ties with a company in Kiev, uh, Magma, and they have figured out a way how to take a lot of basalt uh, and, um, and melt it and spin it and produce fibres or beads. And those beads now can be used to reinforce geopolymers and make it very wear resistant. That melted basalt, that melted basalt has a hardness, we just measured it two weeks ago, of 8.6 gigapascals. Diamond hardness is 10. So this is pretty close to diamond hardness. And so they've been putting these spheres, these basalt spheres into uh, resin, polymer, you know, to make wear-resistant like countertop kitchen sinks. Oh, well, it could be used for that. Or else they've been putting it into molten metal and that's been hardening and abrasive-resistance metals. And now we're putting them into geopolymers too. Um, well, because in academia we can just do new science. I mean, that's what we do. We invent new materials and then we think of something to do with them. Half the time we just write a research paper and stuff it in the library. But one of these days somebody ought to go and read it, that's what I reckon, <laughs> and start commercialising it. Interesting, interesting. Now, talking about how available these things can be, I mean, talking about it from a um, sort of a geological perspective, is it yep. that the more advanced countries can afford it, but then the less advanced uh, advantaged countries, it's going to be difficult for them to actually go through this route? Uh, well, no, they've got the resources. There's clays and then there's basalts everywhere. Actually, historically, um, you know, there was this industrial revolution uh, and then... In the former so in Russia and the Soviet Union's uh, Ukraine, they have a, a lot of 
they have a lot of basalt there, but not so much iron. And so the US, they went and made the steel, you know, they got into the steel age and steel, steel, steel. But over in the uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia there, They've been um, they they've been making they've been calling it soil cements actually um, there's normal cements but um, but there's stronger better cements and they call them soil cements and historically in 1933 Zeitschrift für Crystallographie papers were started coming out how you could make this alternative uh, material and the Russians call it soil cements it needs less water and it can take the the freezing cold conditions and it's stronger and better than cements. Uh, so it sort of actually started uh, in the Soviet Union, but nobody talked about anybody about anything, you know. And um, there was this fellow, his name was Joseph Davidovitz. He was a, 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 a Russian Jewish person who came out, like during the Cold War, to France. And um, north of Paris, yeah, it was in Paris there. And in 1976, there were a lot of fires in Paris. And um, he, he was an organic chemist, but he brought the technology from the Soviet Union and these soil cements, and he, he um, called them geopolymers, or like geological polymers, and uh, he introduced them to help. You can paste it on wood, and uh, the wood won't burn, or it doesn't burn, and, uh, because it's a, like a ceramic polymer. And um, so he introduced it, and he got a whole bunch of patents, but they're all expired now. And in fact, uh, he's, he's got uh, a brother, Michael, uh, I think, who's got a factory in San Quentin, San Quentin, but it's not the American San Quentin, it's the original San Quentin. I think there's a factory there. And uh, they make um, exhaust ports for all the Formula One racing cars. You, you know, right. those racing cars, um, when you have the engine and it, and it gets really hot and you exhaust it out, well, those racing yeah. car bodies are light and plasticky and the hot uh, exhaust would melt the plastic. So... He, they made uh, you know carbon fiber reinforced exhaust parts for all the Formula One racing cars. Oh, that's an example of geopolymers. There's a range of technologies. There's low tech, medium tech, trying to get high tech technology uh, of geopolymers. It's all a new branch of chemistry. In the old days, it was plastics. Now it's geopolymers. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Um, so, Professor, um, does enhanced rock weathering does that have any um, disadvantages or limitations? Uh, no, so enhanced rock what? Weathering. Weathering, yeah, like that yeah. picture on your website. No, no, it's a great idea. Yeah, it's a great idea. I think every bit helps. Um, if mm. that produces carbonates, we've already produced, we've already dispersed those crystalline carbonates in geopolymers and, and in cements, even conventional cement, it'd be an SEM, uh, cementitious, secondary cementitious, supplementary cementitious material. So it could be used like, like that. But those little fine rocks um, that have been carbonated could be used to reinforce like water filters or construction materials if they're crystalline. Um, if it's uh, basaltic, then, all oh, right, uh, what we've got to do is, de oh, well, if you want to leave it as a carbonate, you could uh, use it as a mechanical reinforcement like, like sand, uh, like sand in cements or sand in geopolymers. Or you could decarbonate it in a controlled way and use it to make geopolymers. But, but uh, there's plenty of other aluminosilicate sources, so there's no need to decarbonate. Just use it as a mechanical reinforcement. Uh, mm -hmm. Plenty, yeah, that'd be fine. Especially if it's fine. Already that's half the job, you know. Um, you just, just build it. And, yeah, there's a, there's a way to do it. Uh, yeah. there is, the science to have an alternative to cement is here. The cost right. effectiveness is potentially here. 
So that was uh, Professor Wartrod Craven, Hobie, who we spoke to earlier on as well. And very interesting um, listening listening to her. Um, how important is it for for us to to fight climate change? Let's listen to what uh, what His Holiness uh, said in regards to this. His Holiness being the the fifth caliph of the Promised Messiah, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza. Masroor Ahmed, may Allah be his helper. Let's listen to what he has to say. My question is, how important is it for Ahmadi Muslims to fight climate change? Very important. You should try to avoid using your car while traveling for a short distance. Either walk to that place or use bicycle. Hmm? Right? Yeah. Cycling is good for your health as well. Secondly, Every Ahmadi should make it a point that he should plant two trees every year. This is how you can fight climate change. If you are here, if we have 30,000 Ahmadis here in the UK or more, then every year we plant 60,000 trees. If not possible here, then those who travel to other countries, they can plant trees there. So in this way, we can help control climate change. My question is, many people are worried about climate change recently. What is Islam's take on climate change? And is there any advice for people at home? <laughs> you see, Allah Ta'ala says that excess of everything is bad, right? Although, you see, whatever the climate change is because of the industrial revolution, too much uh, smoke is being sent on in the air, air is being polluted. This is why it is one of the causes of the climate changes. Secondly, the, the, the trees are being cut and uh, no new forestation is being done in the especially in the third world countries right although the population is increasing but if we have proper plans we can make we can accommodate the population in such a way that uh, Within the limited area of the land, we can accommodate as many people as possible, right? And infrastructure should be provided according to that, okay? So, if we are not following the, you know, the what law of nature requires from us, then the ultimate result will be that we are going to ruin our future. We are going to doom ourselves or our generation. So the, the best way is that uh, instead of the, the greed or involving too much, involving ourselves too much in in the in the the comfort of the world 
and by creating so much of gadgets and, and you see without any you know proper planning increase our production and because of the competition as china is doing and india is doing or america is doing now china china says that because america started this pollution on of the climate pollution some hundred years ago so this is why they have advanced themselves now we have started it now and we shall take again next hundred years before we stop so every country have their own vested interests they are not to reduce the climate change that was uh, two audio clips of uh, of his holiness the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community telling us a little bit more about uh, about climate change and what we can actually do to help climate change and just c- talking about this um, uh, talking about the risk of mosquito-borne infectious infectious diseases this is uh, quite interesting uh, as well because uh, mosqui- mosquitoes are actually thriving under warmer conditions in Europe and um, and and as a result mosquito-borne infections are actually becoming an increased uh, increased problem and this is according to a, re- a, re- to a report by the ECDC, the European Centre for Disease Prevention and Control. One such example of uh, this is that now they are found in 13 different countries and th- just over 300 mm-hmm. regions as well. Um, I, I think as you mentioned, like they're yeah. thriving under um, warmer conditions warmer in conditions. Europe. It could be, um, maybe I'm wrong, due to the fact that, you know, now European countries have gone warmer, as as we were speaking before. Yeah. That the um, highest temperatures in the summer, mm. especially in the UK, mm-hmm. was record high last year. Record high. They're last saying year. that it's going to be record high again. Mm. And in June, it was the high. It was the hottest June yeah, since yeah, yeah. records began yeah. as well. So. So it could be thing. due to the fact that the European countries have just gone warmer now. Yeah. But the thing is, is that because. It's the, it's the level of hygiene as well, isn't it? Yeah. The more cleaner a place is, the less uh, diseases and less less infections will be there as well. Mm. And obviously, uh, unfortunately, in some African countries, mm. you know, the, the the standard of of hygiene is not that much mm-hmm. because, you know, the, they, the they facilities don't, yeah, they don't the facili- have that much. Yeah, they yeah. don't have the same facilities yeah. as, as we do, which is very very unfortunate. Yeah. And this is a, a major thing as well. So if there's an outbreak of malaria, for example. Um, you know that can that can spread across that particular region. Yeah, and uh, if anyone goes into that region, and we're not immune to it. Yeah, Europe, uh, Europe's that's not the immune thing. To we it. we have to get yeah. you know um, uh, you know we have to get um, prescriptions uh, for that as well, yeah. uh, vaccines for that mm. as well. Especially, I remember when we were especially you you also mm. I'm sure went to Africa after yeah. your studies, um, and we had to take these tablets and injections before mm. going to yeah because then Africa just continent. before just before we went there was Ebola yes, uh, yeah, as, as well the, the, yeah so that was it was that mm. so there's different strains and mm. different types it mutates as well isn't yeah. it and there's different things which are mm. which can be contracted so these are these are different things which we you know which we are working towards as well to help mm. and find different cures in regards to, in regards to this and but I think you know, like we mentioned, um, you know, cleanliness is 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 very yeah. much important. And our faith, it's in our faith, it's part of our faith. It's part of our faith. I mean, the, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, 
has said that uh, it is part of our faith. Yeah. And in another generation, he said that this is cleanliness is half of faith. Yeah. So, because I think very you know um, our physical uh, aspect also yeah. um, affects our spirituality. Exactly. So if we are clean on the outside, naturally our insides, our soul, our mm. spiritual mm. state will want to be pure and clean as well. Exactly. And the Prophet has explained this uh, really well in his books. If anyone wants to read the philosophy of the teaching of Islam, mm. for example, mm. he's mm. explained it really well. The Promise Society, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim yeah. community, he, he's spoken extensively uh, about this as well. Your your outer experience, uh, uh, whatever you, you're feeling on mm. the outside, um, your inside would you know have an effect on mm. that as well. And your soul would have an effect on that. As well. there, there, there's another example that he's given that you know during prayer, during salat, mm. during namaz, if um, you are not you, you haven't developed that um, that awe or that, that feeling, isn't yeah, it? That yeah, that feeling or the emotion. Or this yeah. sadness. Um, one thing to develop that is that if you make a crying face, yeah, and that initially will affect your spirituality Spiritual. and it will melt your heart at the yeah. end. So even though you it started might be it off, yeah, 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 it might be forced, but it will turn into something which is a reality. Turn so a reality. your physical aspect will affect your uh, spiritual aspect. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And um, yeah, the the. Um, the Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the fifth Caliph, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, also explained this in his uh, recent sermon. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's listen to uh, um, an interview that we that we conducted as well of Mark Smith uh, right now. We're honoured and privileged to speak to Mark Smith, who is an associate professor in water research at the University of Leeds. A key research theme is understanding the effects of, uh, of water flows and floods on the environmental suitability for vector-borne diseases such as malaria. He's worked extensively in Africa and uh, in various uh, other um, places as well, um, including recent projects in Zambia and Tanzania. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Mark Smith. Nice to speak to you. Thank you so much. So to begin with, for the benefit of our listeners out there, could you give us a brief overview of what the risk of mosquito-borne infection is, um, especially during the summer, and what are its uh, sort of symptoms? Sure. So um, I guess the reason that we're seeing uh, increases in mosquito-borne diseases in, in Europe um, over summers is, is the increasing temperatures that we're seeing. So mosquitoes are cold-blooded. So they can't regulate their body temperature like, like we can. And so they live within quite strict temperature ranges. And so what, what we're seeing is that um, th th that range is sort of generally a bit too warm for Europe. But all of a sudden, the length of the summer that it becomes viable uh, is, is extending the transmission season slowly but surely uh, in Europe. So the increasing temperature really is uh, encouraging these mosquito vectors to live longer and, and these mosquitoes are able to transmit uh, various different uh, parasites or viruses so um, you, you mentioned about symptoms so there's actually so many different things that it could be um, so so obviously malaria is one of the more commonly studied ones so that, that's a, a parasite uh, and so yeah uh, you know we're, we're, we haven't seen too much of that really in Europe being being transmitted so far but uh, yes yeah, the symptoms of, of malaria uh, are uh, sort of, you know, like um, high temperature, sweats and chills, headaches and sort of feeling confused, things like that. Uh, whereas uh, other, other things like dengue, for example, 
dengue is sort of severe joint pain is really a symptom. They call it backbone fever. Um, whereas I guess the other one is chikungunya. And again, that's very, very related to dengue. And it's sort of pains in your joints really is, is the main the main thing that's associated with that and the sort of fever and, and rash as well. That's interesting uh, because I wanted to uh, just uh, um, ask you about, about that as well, dengue, uh, malaria and various other diseases. So can you just explain a little bit further how they might sort of spread even more during this time? What's the, what's the reason for that, though? Yeah, sure. Well, I'll take malaria to begin with. So, um, yeah. you know, the, the mosquito is uh, not born with malaria, okay? It contracts, right. it catches malaria from the humans that has malaria. So... Um, what happens is it needs to go through various reproductive cycles really to have a greater chance of picking up this malaria parasite. So it would only bite a human. It's only the female mosquitoes that bite humans and they only take a a blood meal from a human when they're about to lay eggs. So that, that first bite of a human, they wouldn't pass on malaria, but they could catch it from an infected human and temperature, the air temperature can determine how long that mosquito lives for. And also the biting rate, how quickly it can bite. And other things as well, like how fast that parasite can develop within the mosquito and be ready to be passed on. So really, it's after several reproductive cycles that that mosquito is most likely to have malaria and pass it on to a, to a human being. And that, that, um, that's determined by temperature. So generally, the warmer it is, the more likely it is to have picked up malaria because it lives longer. And the same goes, again, for, to the other viruses as well, like a dengue and chikungunya. Uh, it's slightly different, but, but the general principle applies there. So, so as temperatures have gradually been increasing, and it's worth saying that, you know, in Europe, we're just on the fringes of this. It, it, we're not, it's not serious compared with, with the rest of the world. But, uh, you know, we're seeing gradual increases in temperature, especially over the summer. You know, July 2022 was nearly half a degree above the 30-year reference period. So it's just coming into that, that viability, uh, particularly for, for, well, for various things like malaria and dengue. But, but you know, it, mm-hmm. it's worth saying that, that transmission is dependent on both the presence of an infected human and the presence of a mosquito that can pass it from person to person. So, so it does not spread directly from one person to another like COVID did. You need to have a mosquito in the middle. Um, so what we might see is if someone travels to um, a tropical country, say, and comes back with an infection, if we then have these mosquito vectors around us, then that allows the possibility of the virus or the parasite becoming uh, present in the local population. And we've seen it in, uh, in America, in the USA. There were some cases of malaria recently. Uh, now, often they're related to international travel, as I've described, Quite recently, we had some uh, this year that they believe were actually caught in, in the U.S., so like a few places in Florida and one in Texas, I think. And that suggests that it had sort of just started to get a hold in the local mosquito population. But again, it, it was at the edge, so it most likely burnt out quite soon. But it, it shows that it's becoming increasingly likely in a warmer world. Hmm. Interesting, interesting. And, and well, the, the other thing to say yeah. would be, I suppose, you need, you need water, as well so that, that's really right, my area right. of research is that um, the mosquitoes will breed in a water body so you need standing water for them to lay their eggs uh, mm. and what we're seeing again is, is as we've got warmer summers the air is able to hold more moisture and we've seen floods more likely in the summer in europe so i don't know if you remember the big july 2021 floods that uh, were in germany area 
These, mm-hmm. you know, these yeah. were directly yeah. linked to climate change. And again, if you've got a warmer world, a warmer country rather, more suited to mosquito transmission, and then it's wet and it's flooded, then you've got perfect breeding sites for the mosquitoes as well. That's that's why we're mm-hmm. seeing it, it increasing in likelihood. So again, we're still talking about small small things here, but it's just gradually creeping creeping in that direction. Mm-hmm. Do they change then, um, like, such as? Uh, strains, uh, you know, in, in different diseases and viruses, they can have different strains. Is that the same in this case as well? And I have heard about, um, well, there are different variations of, of say, malaria. There's, there's four versions of the parasite. Uh, so, so the malaria that you tend to get in, in Africa, uh, the falciparum malaria, it's called. That, that's, you call it cerebral malaria. It can go into the brain. And that's, that's the one that tends to be fatal. Whereas what you would get in, in areas of, of Asia and what we're seeing sort of the individual cases of on the fringes, like in Europe, is a, is a milder version. I, I haven't mm. heard of it sort of changing, but we, we have heard of sort of new versions, uh, new, new um, species coming in. There's a possible fifth one that's come across from, from, from monkeys, I think. But uh, it's not something that I'm seeing, uh, I'm hearing about regularly. But it is certainly possible, especially with the viruses. Right. Right. Now, coming towards the uh, preventative side in, in regards to this as well, what can be done to prevent ourselves from getting these infections when we're sort of uh, outside? Uh, what, can, what can we do? Sure. Well, I mean, the, the first thing to say is I wouldn't worry too much in Europe, okay? So, right. But if you were yeah. traveling, if you were traveling overseas, um, uh, when you're outside, the, the the biggest thing you can do is wear mosquito repellent and long sleeves as well. Mm-hmm. So. Um, mm-hmm. For things like dengue, the Aedes mosquito that, that bite you typically bite outdoors. So um, it's when you're outside, possibly in the early evening, just as it's sort of the, the sun's going down, that's when you're, mm-hmm. you're likely to see the peak biting periods in, in the morning time as well. Uh, so wear long sleeves uh, as much as you can, but especially at that time, and wear mosquito repellent as well if you're in an area that's particularly vulnerable to transmission. Mm. Uh, the, the other thing is if, if you have traveled to somewhere uh, that's got, got these, these um, parasites and viruses more, more widespread, when you come home, if you're in an area where there's lots of mosquitoes in the summer, for example, wear repellent after you come back to avoid passing on anything. Uh, you, you know, it may, yeah. you may be asymptomatic. You know, dengue, a lot of people are asymptomatic and they don't feel it. They're just a reservoir for the, for the virus. So, um, you know, you mm-hmm. don't want to pass it on locally. So so maybe just be a bit mindful for a few weeks after you come back. Yeah, yeah. And so that's when you're, when you're outside. What about when you're at home? What, what are different things that we can actually put in place to prevent it, um, you know, contracting this when you're at home? Yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting one because um, so, so malaria is the classic one there where we, we understand that the, the most common malaria vectors, the mosquitoes that transmit malaria, would bite you indoors and when you're in bed. So the big drive for that would be bed nets and um, uh, sort of it, in, insecticide-treated bed nets. But I don't think you'd need to go that far in, in, in Europe, but it's, that would be when you're somewhere where it's, it's much more widespread. Um, right. But again, you know, what, what we're seeing is... Um, Actually, some some of these mosquitoes are, are kind of widely distributed in Europe, but uh, you know, ranging from say like um, Portugal to to the Ukraine, but that they don't tend to bite people that much. It's the mosquito vectors in Africa that are more 
more people biting. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what mm-hmm. is interesting, even in Africa, some of the work we did in, in, in Zambia, for example, we, we yeah. found, we did some genetic, some genomic testing of the mosquitoes we were catching. And we were told that there would be these certain Anopheles species, these certain mosquito species that bite you at night and in bed. And actually what we found was that that wasn't the case, that they'd sort of been um, selected against by the presence of bed nets everywhere. And it was these other species that would bite you during the day that we found. So um, it it had to change the malaria control policy uh, of of that area a little bit to, to be more mindful about shifting it towards outdoors instead of indoors where it's classically been, yeah. been done. But, you know, if you, if you find yourself in an area like that, just check that there's no holes in the, in the eaves and things like that. And, and yeah, use a bed net and, uh, and a spray as well before you go to bed. Now, these are some preventatives. What about if someone has actually got infected? What, what, what treatment options are actually available um, when someone is infected? Sure. Well, um, I mean, the first thing to say would be to seek advice from your doctor if you've been given a, um, a, a positive uh, test for, for any of these. Um, so yeah. for dengue and chikungunya, there aren't any um, specific antiviral agents that exist. And for, the, for most people, the advice would simply be to just stay hydrated, you know, try and keep the fever down and avoid getting bitten by any further mosquitoes so, so that you don't spread it. But, but there are mm. cases that do become more serious. Uh, uh, because it's quite rare, but it does become more serious. And for that, you know, you'd be looking at, at hospital treatment. Um, and, and again, you know, uh, just like with, we saw with COVID, if, if you're particularly in an at-risk category, like newborn children or, or pregnant or, or an older adult, again, just take a bit of extra caution and, and make sure that you get hospital treatment. And with, with, with malaria, um, you can get a rapid diagnostic test very easily. And uh, that can, uh, that might need to be dealt with quite quickly. Uh, again, you know, you just get yourself straight to a doctor, basically. Um, you can get a, a drug that interferes with the growth of the parasite uh, in, in your blood. But uh, in, the, in, in Europe, certainly, you'd have to get that from a, from a doctor. But I, I, think, I think beyond that, you know, um, I, I wouldn't want to worry too many people and say it's likely to happen uh, in Europe. But I think what we do need to do is, is perhaps more as a, as a society have a look at how we're perhaps underfunding some of these things like mm. dengue and chikungunya in particular malaria does attract yeah. a bit more funding but but you know as a as a society maybe have this um, early detection and eradication and control of mosquitoes that's something that we probably do need to to move towards rather than sort of thinking about sort of uh, what to do when you're diagnosed actually try and get there beforehand and be preventative i think is, is the answer yeah and, uh, and probably invest in yeah. vaccines and treatment as well for for specifically dengue and chikungunya Absolutely, absolutely. Can you just uh, tell us, reiterate to us that how how important it is to just you know keep keep clean, um, uh, you know, being hygienic, keeping uh, clean wherever you know your clothes, your body, you know your surroundings. How, how important is that? I mean, do we need to emphasize that a little bit more, or what do you think? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that would jump out with that is standing water. You know, a, a lot of these mosquitoes have, have done quite well from, uh, you know, just things lying around. So, you know, it's areas that you might not think of being standing water, but like a, a tire, you know, an old car tire left out can collect water in it. And that's been a, known to be a really important breeding site for some 
mosquitoes. But again, any any, any area where you might see little puddles forming and it's if it's not all, all clean, that that that's the issue really. I think it's it's that those breeding sites trying to limit those breeding sites is is key. So yeah, that that would come down to to the water for sure. Professor, thank you so much for joining us uh, today and speaking to us, and it's been an absolute pleasure. And hopefully, no. you know, the listeners benefit from this as well. Thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for having me. So that was uh, that was uh, Mark Smith who told us a little bit more uh, about this uh, about this as well, and uh, I mean we we asked him as well in regards to in regards to cleanliness, and he also said that cleanliness is is you know is vital is very very much important. Um, but we're coming towards the end of our show uh, for today, and we've spoken uh, at great length. Um, about uh, about this as well, about how to fight or combat climate change, about uh, mosquito infectious diseases, as well. Hopefully, uh, you must have benefited from uh, from that as well. And um, thank you to all all of the guests who took time out and uh, and spoke to us, and uh, and uh, the you know it, it, because it has been very very much informative as well. Yeah. And thank you to the producers and the researchers as well, Hania Yakub and Mehrish Dogger. And uh, the researchers Maria Sheikh, Namud Namud Seher, Tanzil Khurram, and Nawira Khanazol. Thank you to the technical department, Akib Ahmed, and a pleasure um, presenting with uh, with yourself, uh, Abdul Halim Azol. It's been a, as it's always. been an absolute pleasure. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. <laughs>